Hello everyone and welcome back to episode 14 of Wake Up Call. We're so excited for this episode because we have a very special guest. She is Alexandra Lisova. She's a criminology professor at Simon Fraser University in Canada. She is a Trudeau and Fulbright scholar. She studies a very interesting topic, intimate partner violence. She is the 2022 recipient of the Nora and Ted Sterling Prize in support of controversy for her years of dedicated research on male victims of domestic violence, a field that can sometimes be fraught with polarizing and politicized debate. That is why we're so excited today to have her on and talk about why few men come out and loudly share experiences about their experience with domestic violence. Uh, what are the differences between violence on men and women? And what are some ways to prevent this or to solve this huge issue? Hello and welcome to the show. So just to introduce uh, listeners to your work, could you tell us uh, what is your research about and what are you working on currently? Yes, so um, my name is Alexandra Lesova and um, I'm an associate professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University in Canada, Vancouver. And uh, my main research interest is intimate partner violence. And um, I'm focusing on various aspects of um, this issue, including specifically gender issue. So I'm interested in male and female victimization and perpetration, so where they overlap. And I know um, in my area of research, particular interest and focus was on violence against women. But in my research, I'm actually extending this and uh, looking at men as victims of abuse. So in interviews, you've mentioned um, that domestic violence isn't an issue that should be politicized. What do you mean by the politicization of domestic violence? And, and in your perfect world, how would the discourse surrounding this topic be conducted? Uh, yes, this is uh, this is quite unfortunate that the area of intimate partner violence and family violence become politicized. Um, so what, what do I mean by this is that there are certain perspectives that um, people in the field are expected to use when they discuss family violence. But this phenomenon is so complex that one perspective it can hardly um, cover or explain the most, the many, many difficult questions that arise when we look at family violence. And what I understand by politicization, politicization um, is when one theory, one perspective becomes the dominant one and started to suppress the other points of view. Um, it happens in our field, um, thanks to the feminist movement in the 1960s and 70s. Um, the uh, intimate partner violence, family violence became um, a social issue. It's very, it was very important at the time to make it public, to acknowledge the suffering of victims of abuse, but the focus was on women. And now we've learned so much in the recent years that there are so many other victims. <clears throat> the women be may become an aggressors and perpetrators of abuse. However, within this dominant paradigm that was set up 
in the beginning, it's very difficult and it's very limited to look into all these questions. And we feel those of us who question the main paradigm, the main gender-based paradigm, or sometimes it's called gender paradigm, we face some kind of resistance. It, it is hard to ask different questions and um, and study it from different points of view, or even ask the question about the male victims and female perpetrators of abuse. So within your research, how is this um, sort of manifested? Has there been like a reluctance from university administration to, uh, you know, give you funding to look into these issues? Has there been pushback from colleagues? Um, academically, when you're when you're doing this research, has have you felt that your academic freedom has been limited in any sort of way, or perhaps um, you face any resistance from your academic colleagues? Um, yeah, there are different types of uh, representations of how. Um, this resistance play plays out. Um, one way is through the publications and uh, other way is through the uh, getting funding for the research. I think getting funding, get, getting funds, uh, funding for the research, this is the uh, probably uh, one where we feel particularly difficult to get sometimes. Um, we read the feedback provided by the reviewers and sometimes the feedback looks like, why don't you ask a different question, which I don't find a, a necessarily a, a very useful feedback uh, on the specific project. Um, yes, and of course, I've, I've had some clashes at the conferences when I presented on um, female aggression. And that was um, my first experience like this was around 10 years ago. And at that time, interesting that I was at the conference where people with different views got together. And now I find with time that there is this kind of separation of people with different views finding their own different conferences and not really meeting each other. So now in some ways it's easy to talk because we all meet and talk only to each other. But that's not necessarily a good thing or useful thing for the field as I see it. So it would be important to get together and continue the discussion and find a way um, what's the best for the victims, um, how to prevent violence, how to make sure that we look at all different aspects of the issue. And I don't think it's happening. As for the university itself, um, no, it's, 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 been, it's been quite well um, because the university is just a structure that gets us all together. But the specific ways through the publication process, through getting public and presenting our research, that's where you, we can see specifically that um, there is some resistance. Yeah, I think me and Vishva can definitely agree that, I mean, we even started this podcast with the aim of sharing different perspectives and educating people to not stay in these echo chambers. So we definitely see how this is very important. And I wanted to talk a bit more about the gender division in this topic, because I feel like if you're an active person on the internet, it is very easy to see how a lot of women nowadays are coming out and sharing experiences of them facing domestic abuse, whether mental, whether physical, they're sharing experiences about them uh, facing these horrible issues. And I think this especially sort of exacerbated after the Me Too movement started. Uh, you know, we see the feminist movement and other women rights organizations constantly reminding society that these issues exist and also lobbying governments to take certain action. For example, a notable one is the Istanbul Convention 
which seeks to prevent uh, violence against women and overall violence in the family. However, it is also weird that we see very few men doing the same thing, sharing their experiences, or even, you know, asking for help. And I wanted to share with the listeners some of your research and some of the data that I found uh, while researching about you. Data from 2009 and 2014 from the Canadian General Social Survey on Victimization estimated that more than 655,000 men in Canada reported having experienced physical or sexual victimization due to this intimate partner violence uh, at the time of the surveys. So I want to ask you, why do you think that there is this sort of division between how uh, women speak about this issue and how men don't usually do that? Uh, do you think that this is the case because of like psychology of men or toxic masculinity or cultural differences? Or do you think that this is something else? Yeah, this is a very good question. And you already addressed um, some of this. Um... Um, issues. You've mentioned some of the potential reasons for that. You're absolutely right. Um, what is true is that women uh, are victims of abuse, and we know that, and uh, they are particularly more likely to be victims of sexual violence and uh, severe forms of violence, including um, intimate partner homicide. At the same time, we know that there, there are many men who experience physical violence, sexual violence, ecological aggression, a legitimate and administrative abuse, a relatively new form of abuse, when the partners threaten or use this system, criminal justice system, legal system, against the partner. So this is relatively new, and we know men are more likely to experience this than women do. But you are right. We mostly hear the stories of women, and these stories are very powerful, and they mobilize society to combat violence against women. There are many serious, very powerful international organizations that work to uh, address violence against women in the world, um, World Health Organization, United Nations, they all have divisions, special departments working um, to address violence against women. However, it's not the same for men. You are absolutely right. Um, we know the male victims are out there. And there are so many, many thousands of them, as you correctly um, cited our statistics from Canada. Um, they're not that active in um, in coming out and revealing about the experiences of abuse. Uh, for example, last week there was an International Men's Day. And this is something that many people never even heard of this day. And this is the day that we, we could remember and think about victims of abuse and victims of wars, which are primarily men. We could talk about the suicide um, issue that, again, affects primarily men. Uh, but no, we don't hear that a lot. Partly, gender stereotypes have a very important role to play. Men just do not, do not feel comfortable um, going out and uh, revealing themselves and revealing the experiences of abuse in public. Um, it characterizes the, this is them as weak, as not masculine, as uh, going against the traditional norms and expectations of masculinity. And what is interesting is that, that men who didn't meet um, ideas of the you know, true masculinity, they were always historically treated 
not well um, compared to women. Um, men were laughed at. Uh, there are very humiliating rituals for men who didn't fit the standards of the true masculinity, and particularly if they were just abused by their wives, by the women. So yes, this is all, all very, very strong. And we know from psychology studies that men are much less likely than women to look for help. Even if they experience health issues and problems, they wait, wait until the last moment. And even with um, our men that we studied in our sample, we asked them these questions. What's happening? Why did you wait for 12 years living in this toxic, abusive relationship? And they're just saying, we don't, I don't know. I just hoped it will become better. So men share a lot of myths that the relationship somehow will get better. Um, another important factor is that the men, since they do not hear the stories of other men, they kind of think that they are isolated, they're alone. So nobody else is suffering, it's just me. And maybe I'm just an exclusion from the rule. So they don't get that support and idea like the uh, women get because they hear a lot of stories. They know it's not normal. Violence should not be part of the relationship. It doesn't mean to beat means to love. Men just don't have that. And then another important issue what we find with men is that men are what we call a blind to abuse. They just do not call what happens to them abuse. When the women slaps them in the face, throw things at them, they just don't call it abuse. Now, if we just turn it um, other around, women would clearly, and people from outside clearly will acknowledge, oh yes, that's abuse. Nobody, nobody can be hit or things thrown at them or humiliated in public. But when it happens to men, many people feel very shy and uncertain about that. Or maybe it's just a feminine way of expression anger and it's kind of okay. There was a very interesting experiment conducted in, in, uh, uh, by BBC um, in uh, the United Kingdom. And they actually um, prepared a short documentary. Uh, in one case, on the bench, there was a couple where the, uh, a male partner kind, kind of abused, pretended to abuse a woman. And almost everybody who passed by in that park stopped and told him, you should stop. You should stop. It's not okay. We will call the police. So it was everybody would 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 need to interfere and and feel it's wrong. However, when they switched the roles, and it was a woman who did almost the same things with the men, almost nobody stopped. People looked at them and some kept going because they would say, "Oh, you know what? I don't know how to respond to this. It's not kind of something that deserves to be treated seriously." So yes, all of these gender stereotypes lack of attention to men's issues, lack of information about men, um, all plays out. And of course, the idea that in this research, it's just about violence against women. Men tell us, we just don't fit. It's all about women. Where do I go? What do I say? It's not designed for us. We're not welcome. Yeah, and I think a lot of those underlying issues that you addressed, like in terms of uh, of the of the social, like, taboo against men being vulnerable, men calling something that's abusive as, as abusive. I think there's there's some action now. People are realizing, wait, 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 this is completely wrong. Uh, you know, I'm starting to think about the evolution of Movember from a prostate cancer awareness month to becoming a men's mental health awareness month as being one thing. But even these things are sort of often derided as, as, as toxic masculinity. I, I just citing something I read in the school paper, and McGill Daily released this article, basically lambasting 
um, Movember as a men's uh, men's wellness month as being something that's toxic, an example of toxic masculinity. And that essentially, like, you know, there's all these issues in the world and men are doing so much better than women in the world. Therefore, these issues don't deserve to be talked about, which I just thought was completely ridiculous because our very goal is to is to is to heal these divisions and these and these problems in our society. Why should it matter whose um, whose issues we're dealing with? It's not like by dealing with men's issues and raising awareness for men's health, we're somehow diminishing the the, the struggles that women have gone through as well. So I think that was a very interesting point that you uh, brought up. I want to talk about something that you said early in your answer when you talked about um, male homicide and intimate partner homicide. So research shows that women are more likely to experience domestic homicide than men in relationships, like you mentioned. And the UN number that um, they have is that 45,000 women and girls worldwide were killed by their intimate partners and other family members in 2021. So on average, five women are killed by someone in their own family every hour. So you've researched, um, in, in difference to, to this particular piece of research, you have in particular researched domestic homicide on men rather than women. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your findings from this research on this particular topic, um, the circumstances surrounding these, these homicides, how they might compare and contrast with the homicides on women? Yeah, um, so um, this is something as well research studied, um, very well researched. Uh, the fact that around 80% of victims of intimate partner homicide are women and around 20% in different countries in Canada, it's around 21% um, are men. So every fifth uh, person killed in a relationship is a man. And again, the majority are women. Um, so what I think happens here is this is something, um, what I think, why I think it's important to look into domestic homicide or intimate partner homicide. It is just because this is something which is quite different from the stranger homicide. Um, domestic homicide happens within the intimate relationship in the context of very strong emotional connection people living for years together, uh, sharing property, having children together, other relatives. And um, if we frame the issue of violence against women, or uh, now they call it a uh, femicide issue, so they focus on the femicide, then we actually, I think we do not see the complexity of this issue. It's not just the violence against women or femicide, as they just find it uh, killing over women because they're women. There is so much complexity in these cases. Women killed not just because they're women, just because there are so many factors involved in addition to this. And they, of course, include um, intimate partner communication and many, many issues with communication between the partners, including frustrations, arguments, fights over money, over children, over sex. There are so many different issues involved. Um, all additional factors like weapon, presence of the weapon, presence of other people, um, uh, substance use, all of them complicates the issue even further. And of course, let's think about mental illness and uh, personality disorders that the partners can have. So all this play a very important role. We cannot just reduce it to something like this kind of tautological explanation of 
killing women just because they're women doesn't really explain anything. In this case, we can say that violence against men when men are killed is just because they're men or children because it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't explain anything. And what I think is why is this is, is not is, is important to really look at this that way because how does it help us to actually prevent violence against women and violence against men and everybody in the domestic homicide? So in my research, what I did, I actually just looked at the men because I realized that we almost know nothing about them. With this focus on women, we almost have no idea who are these men. And there are many of them who are killed in a relationship. Every fifth person dying in intimate relationship is a man. So, and then I've realized that there is one dominant explanation. Men are killed because they were abusers. So when the women took justice in their hands, they just killed them in self-defense for self-protection or as a form of resistance to the abuse. So these men are basically seen as abusers. And there is a very strong resistance in the family violence literature when we talk about violence against women, against blaming the victim, actually. But in this case, what I'm seeing is that these men are primarily seen as, as, as responsible for their own victimization. So what, what happens is that indeed, in some cases, we know that women live in an abusive relationship and then they are actually, since the criminal justice system in many countries are not at, at that level where it can help victims to uh, address the abuse before the escalation happens, they, they kill the abusers. This, is, this happens, we know that. However, how, how prevalent these cases are. And what we see, contrary to some expectations, contrary to some kind of assumptions that people have, it's not the prevalent category of cases. There is so much more. Women are killed in the relationship of bi-directional violence, when both men and women are violent to each other. Like, think about Johnny Depp and um, Amber Heard case. We know that there was bi-directional violence. Both of them were violent at some point. So in one of those interactions, what can happen if the partner has a weapon, if it happens that somebody just hit a person in a specific way, it just, this is what happens, right? So we have to investigate these incidents and understand that how they can be prevented when women are also perpetrators of these domestic homicides. And there are also cases when actually uh, females can be intimate terrorists in the same way as some men can be intimate terrorists. So this is the classification used in uh, intimate partner violence research. Intimate terrorist is a partner who is not only violent, but mostly controlling, controlling all the aspects of the, uh, the partner. So they actually check the emails. So they always monitoring where the partner is, constantly checking where have you been, have you seen, uh, suspecting, suspecting some kind of um, uh, not loyal behavior. And then we know there are these cases when the men are victims of this abuse. And since uh, nobody can help, nobody helps them, even when these incidents become known to the police, you know, even police just shrugs them off and just laughing and saying, you know, I mean, it will be okay. I'm just uh, warning the female perpetrator. And then the men is, end up being killed. So these cases should also be um, investigated and we need to... Um, understand that they can, could be prevented. So yes, what answering to your question is, we see much more diversity of cases when the men are killed. We see a lot of more uh, opportunities for the prevention. The problem was, is that there was not much research. And honestly, there's not much interest even to look into who these men are. And um, 
what um, I'm actually um, moving forward in this research, and I'm arguing that if we look at men not only as, as abusers, but also as victims, we can actually would be in a better position to prevent violence against women and homicide of women perpetrated by men who were humiliated, abused for years, couldn't find help, um, start uh, using alcohol and other substances. So do you see this connection? So we kind of missing this part. What this at this point, the research is quite rich on the area when men are abusers with certain, you know, being batterers with certain psychological characteristics, with certain types of controlling behavior. This is well researched, but it's not well researched when actually men who experienced abuse in bidirectional violence, who experienced abuse in intimate terrorism relationship, didn't get help. And this is when they actually become the one who protecting themselves against the abuse or just lashing out after years of abuse just because nobody's there to help them. So yes, we see a lot more complexity, a lot more diversity, and that is why I call my research at this point a typology. I really would like to uh, see many more different types of domestic homicides involving men as women as both perpetrators and victims. Yeah, yeah this, this is, is so interesting, interesting that, that there's, there's so much context that goes into these things, and you might not think about all of the different situations, and that actually gender or the patriarchal standards might not play such a huge factor in comparison to other things that uh, that people in a relationship might uh, experience. So I actually wanted to follow up on something that you mentioned. You mentioned how men tend to be blamed for their own victimization, and they, they're sort of painted as the evil guys, even when they're being abused or represented as illegitimate, illegitimate partners or like victims in the news media. So this is also reminding me of how, for example, many women who have experienced, uh, for example, rape are sort of blamed for their own uh, experience because of the way that they dress or because of the places that they go to. And this is all very bad, of course. So maybe you could explain to us or ponder on why this violence on men is sometimes considered their own issue in the popular media right now? This is part of the uh, of the same larger issue of um, seeing men as exclusively uh, within this very stro strong limits of traditional masculinity. Uh, they're all seen as dominant, powerful, controlling type and not seen as the one who may need help and deserve protection. And that simply acknowledging that not all men are equally powerful powerful and, and, and capable of doing things. Um, there is a great diversity among men as among women. And um, some men are um, very vulnerable. We're talking about the older men who are subjected to abuse. We know about the man living in same-sex relationship, about transgender men. We're talking about the um, immigrant man, about indigenous man. All these different groups experience all kinds of abuse. And people, when they think about men, just don't think about this different variety of men. When they think about women, we kind of, we hear about these minority groups, about these different categories. They are particularly more likely to experience abuse, but in terms of men, it's just like one, you know, homogeneous group of men, and all of them are powerful and strong and dominant. But that's not true. 
there's so much more diversity. And I think this is where um, public and in, in the public view, there is a lack of information on that. So it's uh, it's much more difficult for men to be seen more um, individually. And and I think there is another issue with empathy. Men just do not um, do not incur that sense of empathy that other other victims have. Um, it is well explained again in evolutionary psychology. Um, we experience more. We we want to help more to people to so-called vulnerable victims to the perfect victim who are just vulnerable and weak and and young, um, but men just do not fit that stereotype. So many people struggle with thinking about the the strong, you know, tall man as becoming victimized. And this is something I think as a a great um, opportunity for 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 the media for the public education. Uh, to bring attention to, and it can be done. We know that we're quite successful in media with um, conquering many and addressing many public issues. Think about the smoking or, or some other issues that people also uh, believe that, uh, and it was hard to believe that at some point we can be so successful with this campaign. So yes, I think there is optimism in this, but it, it should be it should be willingness to actually acknowledged it this way it should be and, and that is why i see i unfortunately see this issue so much politicized and uh, considering this issue from certain type of ideology takes away this idea of empathy empathy for men um they are just seen as a oppressors group rather than group that consists of so many different individuals who are in unique circumstances and suffering abuse and different and they need help um, I think if we start being politicized in this issue, and you're right, um, Vishwal, you mentioned one thing about the uh, um, this kind of oppositional vision, uh, and this is what I'm curious about. Every time I'm here about feminist um, women's rights advocates, they are very much praised, right? It's it's great when you hear about people proudly say that the feminist advocates, uh, feminist research and advocates, while people mention men's rights advocates from the men's rights it's seen as something obscene something's wrong it's just it's it's a double standard towards women's protecting their rights and men's protecting their rights so yes it's a lot of double standard uh um painting the other side wrong and not really able to talk about and, and finding the ways there there are many many common experiences that men and women as victims of abuse have and there are very specific things so that is why in, in, in the field of intimate partner violence, we like we, we right now like to use the term gender inclusive or gender specific policies and practices because women and men share a lot of common experiences, like, for example, physical violence, psychological aggression. But women are more likely to experience sexual abuse and, and homicide, while men are more likely to experience difficulties with help seeking and um, legitimate and administrative abuse. So yes, there are things that we can agree on. We just need to work together rather than constantly finding a way to be oppositional and not to talk to each other. But I think this is a problem with the today <laughs> when people stop really talking to each other and um, you know, it's, it's really wrong. I think it's really refreshing to hear your sort of heterodox perspective, removing ideology from the equation entirely and focusing on isolating the problem 
and working together to to find solutions. I think it's a perspective that's that's missing from a lot of discourse surrounding this topic. So our final question to you is this, and it's essentially like sort of synthesizing the findings of of your research in terms of like what can be done to prevent or like solve the problem of intimate partner violence. What are the specific, whether it be policy, interpersonal actions, community actions that can be taken um, both by people experiencing inter um, sorry intimate partner violence and by governments and policymakers at large that can be done to solve this issue? Um, so first of all, I think it is important to um, update our views on intimate partner violence and finally acknowledge that it's no longer just a violence against women. This is the first block, the first obstacle on the way to any reforms and any changes in uh, policies and practic practices that we experience today. Um, and acknowledge that intimate partner violence is extremely complex. Um, everyone in the intimate relationship can become victim of abuse and uh, they all need to be helped. Um, what is important next step is of course the media campaign. Media plays a very important role in it. And what you're doing today is, 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 is I really praise that, to bring the awareness, to really talk about the, um, um, all these different aspects of intimate partner violence uh, that are not well known to the public. I regularly get e emails from people who are saying, thank you so much for bringing this up because we don't, we don't hear this. Nobody believes this, nobody thinks it's serious. Um, so we need more awareness that um, it's not just women. And it's not just talking about men as against women. It's not rejecting violence against women. No, violence against women is real. It's serious. It should, we should, should be there to help. And particularly when we talk about the worldwide perspective, there are so many countries when women experience um, disproportional violence, right? When the gender equality index is so low. Yes, this priority on women in the worldwide perspective should be there, right? When we talk about men, we're talking about the states when and the countries where the gender equality is more comparable. And when we see that the rates of victimization in the public service, in, in the self-reported victimization service, are very close to each other, very similar to men's and women. So we have to see that rather than keep repeating violence against women or just focusing just on one paradigm because it's been there for the past 50 years. We have to be flexible. We have to open our eyes and see what's there and see the victims. So that is why I actually, what I do, I advocate for victims approach rather than gender-based approach. Gender-based has become a synonym of violence against women, basically rejecting the rights of other victims to be helped and considered seriously. We need victims. If there is a victim to be happen, a man or a woman or anybody else, we need to help them regardless of the gender, right? Regardless of whatever they are, if they suffer and they need to be helped. So media is really important. We need more stories about um, not only women, but other individuals who suffer in the relationship, public education or education in schools. It's very important, early education. When boys and girls learn that it's not just boys violence, which is wrong. Girls should, should stop, stop being violent. And it's not the way of girls expression of anger hitting boys and go unpunished right so that's very important early program i think it's very important at the level of the federal agencies and governments really to change to espouse a new paradigm because at this point it is violence against women 
we can see this language. We it's only recently the language was changed from he towards to the abuser and she towards the victim. It's only recently we changed that, and now at least it's more gender neutral in terms of the uh, language. But in terms of the uh, uh, reports, we still see a lot of uh, focus on violence against women. For example, in federal reports, we see that when women are more likely to be victimized, it's clearly stated women are more likely. When it comes to men, when men actually are, are more likely to suffer from certain abuse or are less likely to you know, seek help, it's nowhere stated. It's just victims less likely to seek help. So it's it's almost like our federal agencies are still reluctant to really see this as a gender inclusive issue. So that should be changed as well. And yeah, so I think this, these are some of the steps. Um, and another thing, we know in terms of, for example, residential facilities for victims of abuse, they mandate it to help women. Only 4% in Canada can actually help men. Others simply have no right to do that. So I think that's wrong. Why, if we have victims of all genders, why can all of them get help, right? And then here we, we have a next question, of course, this is a professional training. Who are these people who help in men? Um, and police training, right? Judges training. So all these people who've been, um, who've been very much trained within the gender paradigm, they have very certain view who, who is expected to be a victim and who is expected to be a perpetrator. So the bias starts in the system very early. So it's very important to actually provide this training for the professionals for this more um, gender inclusive approach to intimate partner violence. And I think, again, it's a slow process, but I think we see a very slow change. And I'm quite optimistic that we slowly will be moving to acknowledging more victims, um, regardless of the gender or any other demographic characteristics. Thank you so much. This was so refreshing and interesting, and it really makes sense to me now how we should be talking more about these issues because they will really influence the way that our families exist and the way that we grow our children to, to be healthy, to be happy. So this is all such an interconnected issue and I'm very, very glad that you came on the show to share your research. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.